Hello, and welcome to the Natural Dye Podcast, a place to hear the voices of individuals using color from nature. My name is Kelsey, and I'll be your host today. Ash Alberg is the owner of Sunflower Knits, a naturally dyed yarn and knitwear design company based out of Treaty 1 territory in central Canada. Ash also operates from field to skin, which chronicles their adventures in the Canadian fiber shed. These adventures are often accompanied by Ash's dog Willow, which you can hear at the very beginning of this interview. I hope you enjoy listening and learning from Ash as much as I do on this episode of the Natural Dye Podcast. My name is Ash Alberg, and I am a natural dyer and knitwear designer in Hedgewich, and I'm based out of Treaty 1 territory in central Canada. Um, and I've been working with natural dyes for the better part of a decade now. I've been primarily self-taught. Uh, there's not really any opportunities to train professionally unless you go and do another four-year arts degree and it's not solely in natural dyeing, so I'm not interested. I've already got a couple of degrees. It doesn't really help me as far as anything goes, uh, except from the arts funding grant bodies um, and that's not where my primary practice is. So yeah, that's sort of where things are at now. Uh, and I continue to be uh, self-taught. My focus these days is less on um, less on uh, kind of like the basics of natural dyeing, which I teach regularly. Um, and that's, you know, like I, I do the commercial side of things. Like I, I worry about color fastness. I use really reliable dyes, all of that in my business. Um, but my personal practice and what I'm significantly more interested in uh, is in working with local color palettes uh, and living in the north, there's not really resources that exist for that. My studies have now become kind of this mix of learning botany, which I was not anticipating ever needing to learn, uh, which also helps on like the witchcraft side of things and the hedge witch side of things. And uh, it's like way more chemical analysis than I would need as a hedge witch really. And then, uh, so yeah, botany, plant identification, obviously still like the, the science behind natural dyeing. And then also, uh, because I'm working with local plants uh, and it involves a lot of foraging, then the ethics behind that, especially since my ancestral lineage is not based uh, on Turtle Island. Um, I've got European roots uh, on both sides of the family. And so kind of navigating that plant relationship, um, both just in general, like what is my relationship with these plants? And then also like, how uh, can I be a good steward to the earth? And how do I work decolonization into my practice? Um, so like there's certain plants that I, I will not wildcraft um, at all. Uh, and then there are other plants where it's like, I may use these, but then depending on what land they're on, I may use them in my dye pots or I may not. Uh, I, there's a lot of crossover between the plants that I use medicinally as well as then dye plants. Um, and so depending on what those plants are, what my relationship to them is, and also where I'm sourcing them, then they may end up in my dye pots or they may not. So it's definitely, it's more complex and I don't care if they're gonna last, you know, in at the same level of brilliance for 10 years because um, that's not where my interest lies for that particular part of my practice. The, the kind of tricky bit 
becomes when I'm using locally foraged plants within the commercial side of my business, then I do need to care. And so there are certain plants that I will use because I know that they're reliable. And then there are other plants where I'm like, I don't know, we don't have a strong enough relationship yet at this point, me and this plant. So we're just going to like hang out and play within my personal dye pots. Um, Like wood sorrel. Wood sorrel gives me the loveliest little blue and I do not trust it at all to stick around. Um, So I, you know, that one just stays in my personal practice as opposed to moving over to join tansy and goldenrod and amaranth on the other side of things um but uh it's a lot of fun it is not where i anticipated being uh if you told me five years ago that this would be my sole source of income and that uh i would be like running a business doing this um and also that my my design taste as a knitwear designer because i've been designing for I guess it's been a little over five years now. Um, but even like two years ago, if you look back through my my portfolio on Ravelry, um, the style of my designs and the yarns that I'm using and the color palettes that I'm working with are significantly different. Like at that point, I was still very much enjoying using superwash wools that had been dyed with acid dyes. Uh, and these days, I, I don't. That doesn't mean that I don't appreciate some of the, you know, like I, I still appreciate the work that comes from a very good acid dyer, um, but I'm not personally interested in using it myself. Uh, and I've never been interested in using acid dyes. Um, I think the, like when I started working with natural dyes, it became very quick, apparent very quickly that nothing about it was convenient uh, and nothing about it was reliable. And I sort of loved that aspect of it and I continue to love that aspect of it. So it can be super annoying, um, but that's also the bit that I enjoy the most. I think it would be incredibly boring, especially Especially on the business side of things, if you kept getting the exact same result every single time, it becomes um, monotonous. Uh, whereas with the natural dyeing, the challenge becomes you're working with an agricultural product. And for me, it's even more so because I'm working with farm yarns. Um, so I work with, uh, in my business, uh, I only work with Canadian sourced fibers that have been milled in Canada. Um, and the mills that I work with uh, are really wonderful and they also use very minimal um minimal processing minimal like there's no chemicals that go through the practice uh like the scouring and everything it's done with vinegars a lot of the time to scour um and then like some some very uh earth gentle soaps and and a large part of that is because the mills are situated on lands where they also need to be using them and they're in closed loop water systems so they can't be poisoning their water because it's going to go directly onto their land so uh that's a lovely part of it but it does mean that uh it changes the way that the natural dyes behave um and then of course you know especially when i'm working with with um foraged and homegrown dyes uh, those chemicals are even less reliable which is funny because you'd think that you'd be able to control them a bit more um, but even when I'm sourcing from uh, I primarily use Mewa dyes uh, when I'm working with um, stuff that I haven't grown or foraged myself um, but you know I'll, I'll order something in and then as it's you know finishing off and I'll order in my next thing and there's like a little bit of overlap between the two and you can tell that they are coming from two separate harvests even though they work with the same farms even though those farms are very well established long 
running suppliers of natural dyes, uh, the harvests are visibly different before you've even gotten them into the pot. Um, and that's just like the, that's just the reality of working with agricultural products. I was thinking about it this morning and it's like, it would be if you expected every single carrot that came out of the ground to look the exact same. And like, yes, if you've got A-grade carrots, they will look very similar. And sometimes they might even look visibly, it's hard to tell the difference, but there is still always difference. Uh, and so that's the same with natural dyes, um, which is beautiful. Also does make it tricky on the commercial side of things because at this point, uh, knitters especially, um, although I, I feel like knitters are a little bit, like they understand the concept of dye lots and they will accept a certain amount of variation from an indie dyer um, but there is still that expectation of well if I order a thing then the next time I order the same thing it should look very very similar and sometimes that's not the case with natural dyes um, so I'm happy because I recognize that really early on in my practice and so I've never built my business around being able to provide that to people I don't do colorways um, because it's just it doesn't happen um, I just am like this is what I used this is what's getting written on the label. Uh, and if you want something for the same project, then like order enough so that I can put them all in the dye pot at the same time. There will still be variation because of, you know, the, the moment that one hits the water versus the other, it, there will still be variation and like where something sits in the pot and how close it is to the heat source. Like there is only so much stirring that I am going to do to yarn. Um, so, so yeah, like, you know, that there will always be some variation. Um, but uh, I think that I, unbeknownst to myself, uh, did myself a favor by early on not trying to, to do um, repeatable colorways, whereas there are other natural dyers that I know who are really great at their craft, but they didn't do that from the get-go. And so now, you know, they're a few years into their business. People are purchasing multiple times from them and they're starting to have to, like, build that that education into their business because they didn't have it in right from the get-go. And for me, education has just always been a large part of what I do. Um, and part of that is because uh, when I was getting started, a fair amount of my sales were coming from local people. So I was actually seeing people face to face at markets um, and realizing that, oh, I need to explain these things to people because they just don't know. So like, you know, natural dyes were what everybody used up until about 120 years ago. Uh, but then they very rapidly switched uh, in the supply chain. And so now we've had multiple generations of people not using them. And so people don't understand the differences in how they need to care for things in how to deal with things long term. You're now dealing with people who may or may not be aware of the concept of slow fashion versus fast fashion. Fast fashion folks are almost easier, I find, because they like they know that it's a direct switch. And so the fact that they need to drastically shift the way that they care for a thing is not that weird to them. Whereas for slow fashion folks, they're like, well, but I'm already like they, they know they have like just enough knowledge to kind of trip themselves up at times. But then it's also the the idea of um, you know, needing something to be the exact same for many years shouldn't be that much of a, you know, that 
that much of a stretch in their brains. Like it, it's not going to be the exact same in the same way that you are mending a hole. My um, Lyle just mended my pants that managed to blow out the crotch after wearing them far too many times. So now they've been fixed, which is great. But like between mending holes or re-sewing on buttons or putting in a new zipper or re-trimming the fur on a hood, then with natural dyes, sometimes you need to over-dye them after a certain point. Um, and if you happen to splash some lemon juice on you it might happen a little bit quicker than you were anticipating um but you know that's that's not a thing that people necessarily think of um and i find that there's also a bit of a gap in like people's expectations are that a natural dye should behave the exact same way as an acid dye but then they also hold them to a higher standard than they do acid dyes so like if somebody had uh, an acid dye piece of fabric that got bleached by the sun they wouldn't be surprised by that but if the same thing happens to natural dyes and they're like well clearly this is defective and it's like no it's the exact same principle happens a little bit quicker depending on the dye that you're using but the sun is very hot its rays are very strong and it will impact the the vividness of most colors um and I, I remember having a conversation with another natural dyer several years ago um and she she was like this is not at all scientific but um my theory is that we were talking about the the use of flowers for dyes and how you know the majority of flowers don't do particularly good job with dyes obviously there is a subcategory of flowers that do um but for the most part the, that's not what you're using or if you do use them like hibiscus i love it but it's a more fugitive dye so on the gray scale of stain versus dye a lot of flowers sit sort of in the middle um and so she said you know the the a flower only blooms for a short period of time because it's supposed to and so that falls in line with with its color and if it's sticking around for you know if the color stays for that long like what has been done to that cloth for it to stick around that long like how much processing has happened? What have we done that is not good for the earth? Because things just generally don't stick around that long. Obviously, you know, there's like 3000 year old trees, but like the majority of things do not last that long. And like, yes, we have some examples of amazing uh, longevity of natural dyes, like the, the indigo remnants that have been found that are several thousand years old. That is amazing, but it is not the usual. Um, and I think that as, as at least in the West, as we're trying to work natural dyes back into the supply chain and, and the commercial chain, um, we almost shoot ourselves in the foot because uh, we try to, it's sort, of, it's sort of like in the queer community when people are like, well, we'll just make the straights love us by behaving just like them. <laughs> Like, I don't want to, though. I'm not interested in that. Why are we trying to, to do something that, it, like, we've identified as not the ideal? Like, that's it's not, it works for some people, but it doesn't work for everybody. And so in the same way with natural dyes, where we're, like, trying to make them behave in the same way as acid dyes so that they fit people's expectations rather than putting that work in to do the education making people understand like what are the differences what are what's the beauty within those differences and so you know like when we hold up this like the like the indigo you just keep on reading articles about it and it's almost like put on a pedestal of like look it's possible for it to stick around this long and it's like but why is that the thing that we want it to do why like the, again there is a difference between a stain and a dye 
one of my friends, Kalia, and I, we talk quite regularly about like, you know, if you're if you're going to be dyeing a pair of socks that you're probably going to be darning within a year, depending on how much you're wearing them, then does that dye that you are using need to be a dye that is going to stick around for five years? Like, no, it doesn't. You could use a more fugitive dye, not a stain, but like you can use a more fugitive dye because you're going to be mending it quickly anyway. So it's not that big of a deal to then do that extra work of over dyeing it again if you want to. Um, that being said, if you are going to be dyeing, you know, a yarn for a wall hanging that is going to be hanging on a south facing wall that's getting sunlight, then like, yeah, you're going to be using something different. Um, or you're just going to adjust your expectations. Like I think part of it too is just us educating the general public to a point where people feel confident in overdying if they want to. And if they don't, then they're just cool with that being part of their items life story is the way that it changes. Um, the My friends who run Grand Prismatic Seed, um, one of them, he, uh, he had this shirt last year so they they run a farm in the states um where they grow uh plants for for dyeing as well as food uh, and flowers um and over the course of one summer he had this one shirt that he was like okay well anytime i need to over dye it then i'm going to and i think it went through six different iterations over the course of the summer because he's working out in the sun he's sweating it's just like you know like it's basically every single thing that puts a dye under strain which is changing ph and you know strong sunlight and, and all those things um that happened to the shirt and so it had six very different it was like a full rainbow happened to the shirt over the course of one summer and it was beautiful it was this like really incredible story for this item of clothing to go through um, over a relatively short period of time but if we were to put that into the commercial chain it would be considered a failure even though it's not it's this really beautiful story and relationship and, and living um, experience of an item of clothing um, so I think I think we do ourselves a disservice sometimes in the natural dye industry um, where we want things to be easier and we don't want to put that education in um, at the same time uh, I think that there is a lot of we don't screw ourselves over necessarily. Um, I actually, no, I think that we do um, in the way that we keep information close to our chests. So like for myself with my natural dyeing practice, um, I ended up starting a side project called From Field to Skin a couple of years ago. Uh, and in it, I actually, it's almost exactly two years. Uh, so in it, I chronicle my adventures in the Canadian fiber shed. Um, and so if you go to fromfieldtoskin.com, there is a map where as I find uh, fiber shed players, producers around the country, then they are added. There's a resources list uh, of like actually, you know, good research uh, theory books uh, about the different types of things that fall into fiber shed. The natural dissection is the largest because it is my personal practice. So I know the most um, in that area, but you know, there's stuff about uh, tanning and about furs and hides and uh, about farming and, and all of these things and about mills. And then there are the interviews. And so at this point, we've got 16, the 17th episode will be coming up uh, in early 2020. Um, 
and then and then the rest of it is going to be based on funding. I've spent the last two years just doing interviews on my own dime uh, and realized, wait a second, that doesn't work when I'm spending like a quarter of my time unpaid <laughs> doing work that I love desperately, um, but that is not paying the bills. So, so that will be reliant on uh, larger funding, um, but it's that's also what, where the resources come into play um, so that people can deep dive into their own rabbit hole as they so desire. Um, but the reason that I started it was because when I started my natural dyeing practice, what I wanted to do, I wasn't thinking so much about natural dyes themselves and their direct sources, um, but I was wanting to work with local wool uh, and that was not possible. Um, and a large part of that was because we just didn't have the network. And so I went online trying to find places that I could be sourcing the stuff from uh, and there there was nothing. And so at one point somebody was like, well, here's the phone number for this woman who owns a mill and some merinos up uh, in the interlake. And so I phoned her and she was like, well, I sold off the equipment years ago and I sold off my flock this most recent year. And it was like, like everything was just so far behind. And also I needed to phone her. She didn't have an email address like this was, you know, this is what happens when you're chatting with a lot of farmers. Um, but, uh, and that's just the reality of it. And then add into that the fact that Canada is so huge and everything has a very large footprint as a result of that. With the exception of Manitoba Fiber Festival, which at that point was, was starting around that time. Uh, I think we're six years old now. Um, so around the same time that I was starting to do this on a regular basis was also when that was just getting started. Uh, and so bringing those rural and urban connections together only happened once a year. Uh, and then also not being able to find mills that were, I, I knew of some, but I wasn't able to build a relationship. At that point, Manitoba didn't have a mill. The only mills were in Ontario and then Custom Woolen Mills in Alberta, who I work with all the time nowadays, and they are awesome and I love them. Um, but at that point, like I didn't have a relationship with Maddie and her team. I And I was thinking like, well, that Alberta is really far away because it is. Um, and Ontario was basically the same distance, but just in the opposite direction. Um, and there was nowhere close. And so now Longway Homestead is run by my friend Anna. Uh, and so they are the only wool mill in Manitoba. There is also now a new mini mill that has popped up in Saskatchewan and they're just getting started. So there are more mini mills starting to pop up now, um, but that's really only been in the last couple of years as well. So around the same time I started doing From Field to Skin was when a, a little bit more started happening in the industry. And it's been really cool and interesting to see more and more popping up and more connections being made. But the reason I started from field to skin and the reason why the map is such an important part of it was because I had no resources for um, working within my local fiber shed. Uh, and I don't think I, at that point I knew what a fiber shed necessarily was. Now it's very much part of my practice. Uh, and I don't exclusively work within my fiber shed. My fiber shed is Pemina Fiber Shed um, and I do not exclusively work within it. Like custom is significantly far outside of my fiber shed's boundaries. Um, but just the idea of being able to source and be being able to trace things and track things back to all of their sources. So regardless of whether it's coming from within your immediate environment or not, being able to, to look at the partners you're working with and ask them the questions of where did this come from? Can I go back to the, the immediate source? Um, 
and the, the most direct source, the most primary one, uh, and then being able to say, yes, here you go, is huge and is not a thing that under capitalism really exists. Like that's, that, that's not what most corporations want you to be able to do because that's when you start being able to look at human rights and environmental abuses. So, you know, the under capitalism, most things are made to be as convoluted as possible. Whereas for me, I think it's more important to be as transparent as possible about your practices and about where you're sourcing things from. And so, you know, I've been able to visit all of my mills that I work with, see the machinery in action, which is really cool, understand the differences between the machinery because Anna's machinery is mini mill, whereas Custom uses very old turn of the last century machinery. So what they do is very different. The end result is very different. Me being able to see those things and understand them so that then I can explain that to my customers is really useful. And then on the natural dye side of things, it's it runs into the same issue where the resources don't necessarily exist and people keep things very close to their chest as far as information goes until they decide that you are worthy of getting information. Thankfully for me, Kelly was not like that. She was always very willing to share information um, and and so, you know, it, the fact that I spent as much time with her as I did, it then just increased the amount of information that we were able to share with one another. But it's same with my students. I'm like, I'm going to give you all of the basics so that you understand, especially working with fiber shed yarns and fiber shed dyes, uh, there is way more space for failure. And I put failure in quotation marks because it's not actually failure. It's just like a flop um, and understanding why that has happened. Um and a lot of the time, it's just that like, if you're running a three hour class, that's not actually enough time to extract a good amount of dye <laughs> in a dye pot from locally sourced dyes. Um, but I think uh, like, I like to do that in conjunction with, um, with extracts uh, so that people can also see then the difference of using an extract versus, you know, like let's say some ground up marigolds um, where uh, it's, it's the raw material, but it's still very reliable. And then using like some balsam fur uh, and seeing like, okay, this did not work within our three hour time period, but also I'm wearing a scarf that was dyed with balsam fur. So it's doable, but it takes so much longer. And so having students being able to see that so that um, a lot of my students come to me these days because I work with fiber shed dyes because people are interested in seeing what can they use locally if they want to start up a dye garden, then what can they be doing and what will work well for our northern climate with that. Uh, and, uh, and so it's important for them to be able to see that, you know, you can do these things, but it gets exponentially harder the, the more you try to use our local um, dye plants, at least, uh, which is something that I love. But it, I think that it's important that expectations get set properly, because then you also have folks who the only information that they're getting is via like Instagram and Pinterest, where people either are not going into very much detail about things, or because there's like 2200 characters that you can type into a thing. So you're just not going to go into that much information or people take really lovely photos, but they don't actually know what they're doing because they're just starting to play with things themselves. But because they take really pretty photos, people consider them an authority on a subject and, and it muddies the waters drastically. So like, I think that as industry members, those of us who are actually doing this and know what we're doing, we shoot ourselves in the foot by not sharing information. 
And and I don't think that we necessarily need to like call somebody out and be like, oh, you like talked about using vinegar as a mordant. Obviously, you're an idiot and you don't know what you're doing. Like, that's not helpful either, because we've all also been there. Like, we've all been at that point where we don't know the vocabulary. We don't have good resources. Like, if I look at all of the popular natural dye books that are in the industry right now and that are like circulating around, very few of them have the information that could help me as a northern dyer actually be able to work with dyes that have come from within my own fiber sheds. There are a lot of really beautiful books that have come out of California. Guess what? I don't live in their climate. That's not going to be helpful for me. So... Uh, and, and it's such a specialized vocabulary as well. Like until you have learned our language and the nuances of our language, because there are a lot of nuances, then of course you're going to mess up. But it also means that for folks who are just entering or who haven't tried natural dyeing yet, they don't have that language to be able to tell whether somebody knows what they're doing versus somebody who's just messing around with stuff. Um, and so by not being free with our information and with our knowledge uh, and with our wisdom and our experience, then we kind of slow ourselves down because we're not helping people to enter this world with us. Um, and if we want to shift the commercial side of things to be more sustainable and to work natural dyes back into the supply chain across the board, as opposed to having petrochemicals used for everything, then we do need to make education a higher priority across the board all the time. And I think that if you are not willing to put that education in as a natural dyer, then don't build a business at this point in time. Like we just, we don't have space for people who are not willing to have at least some very basic information that they are willing to share with their customer base. But that's my personal opinion. <laughs> and I'm sure not everybody shares it. Uh, and it. And it is a lot of work to have to be educating your audience all the time. But I, you know, for me, I'm like, that's, that's just the realities of it. Like I'm working with scratchy in air quotations yarn a lot of the time. Um, and I can tell you why that is the way that it is and why scratchy again in quotations yarn is actually like mostly what you want to be using in our, in our climate. Um, and it's not scratchy and actually probably the scratchiness is coming from the yarns that have been brought. Uh, that is a lie. Some yarns from some mills in this country are extremely scratchy, uh, and don't necessarily need to be quite as much, but they are. Um, but a lot of the times the sensitivities that people have to wool specifically is coming from the chemicals that they are processed with. And the mills that I work with do not use those chemicals. So, you know, understanding the difference between woolen versus worsted spun and then understanding like the different breeds and their qualities. And like, yes, like Merino that has come from you know, New Zealand or South Africa and has been super wash treated so that there is no scales left on it because they've either been chemically stripped or they've been coated in plastic and they've been processed to within half an inch of its life, then yeah, it's going to feel really smooth because there's no structure left to it. Like the wool basically doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> um, but, you know, and also those breeds don't live in our climate for a reason, like they would not survive here. So, um, you know, looking at your local climate and seeing what sheep do live in our climate if we're talking wool and what are the breeds and what are the characteristics of those breeds um, and their fleeces. And then also sourcing from a farmer who's growing good fleeces because that is a whole other 
level of things. And then even within a flock and within in the same genetic pool, you can have massive variations between fleeces. So like it can get really, really specific or you can just generally be like, I'm just going to do this over time and I'm going to play with things and I'm going to be okay with the variations of things. Like I don't need something to be like super soft against my skin. Um, but also I will start to learn about different breeds. And so even though different breeds is not the best indicator of whether something's going to be soft or not, like you'll get to the point where you can feel a skein and you'll be able to tell this is much softer than this, or this is going to behave the way that I want it to for the thing that I'm about to knit or weave or whatever, then this one will. You'll get that with experience. But if you're just at the very beginning of starting, then learning about the different qualities of breeds and where they, where those um, breeds like to grow and where they thrive, and then kind of taking it from there and, and making, you know, like playing with it and, and getting expectations of what is going to do what. You know, if you're choosing a yarn from uh, a breed that is growing in Eastern Canada, chances are it is going to be a rougher, more durable yarn uh, because they live in an area where, you know, like you, you want that wool to be able to stop salt spray when you're on the ocean. Like that is when I want that yarn. Yeah, you make some really great points about intellectual property issues with natural dyes. Can you talk some more about that? I mean, I understand it for other things, right? Like I get it on like on my knitting design side of things. Like I get that because it is actually like, you know, there's there's stuff that has come up there that you could just copy and benefit off of. Whereas with natural dyeing, like me sharing a recipe with you is not going to mean that I have now screwed myself over like that but I don't understand because with natural dyeing you still have to do the work <laughs> like it's not and it nothing about it is like you know you're not going to have that reliable of a result like the I would rather have a student like if I'm going to teach a student and they're going to go out and start dyeing or teaching if they're teaching and they've done like half a class with me, that's going to bother me because, you know, you don't know what you're doing, but also that's going to become really clear really quickly. So whatever. And then if you're going to start running a business, like the only people who are going to be around a year later are the ones that are actually willing to put the time in because nothing about it is convenient. Nothing about it is easy. Just having more people is like not a bad thing. Isn't that the way that we want? It's like we want the whole industry to shift that way. But then we also don't want to have competition directly in our in our area. And it's like, I don't know, I find it really weird. So what is your vision for the future for Sunflower Knits and for Field to Skin? Yeah, um, so uh, it's such a funny little beast because I, I do actually have to look at it as a business because, again, we live under capitalism. If I lived in a world where capitalism did not exist and we could just do whatever the hell we wanted, I would just be making things all the time. I would do trades with people who also make beautiful things, uh, and I would be growing the majority of what I need uh, and then bartering with with people who I know to get the other stuff that I need that I don't feel like doing, like raising sheep. But we don't do that. Uh, we don't live under that system. Uh, and so I do need to pay the bills. Um, and uh, it's funny, about four months ago, I was at a point where I was like, you know, maybe I should just go back into the regular workforce um, and get a regular paycheck and keep doing the things, some aspects of the business that I enjoy at a 
much less stressful pace um, and and primarily focus on from field to skin, actually. Like, it would basically offset uh, that. And then... Thankfully, I changed my mind about that. Uh, it is, it, it's always the back, the back pocket option, um, which mostly just means that it releases some of the pressure to make things work because I know that it is an option. Um, I have privilege in that way. I am highly skilled. I'm highly trained. I have multiple degrees. So if I want to go back into the workforce, I can, um, but I also don't want to. <laughs> uh, and I... I value the flexibility that I've built into my life. I value that I can decide, okay, well, it's a really nice day out. Um, so I'm going to take Willow to the dog park. We're going to take the Yarrow and Willow to the dog park uh, in the middle of the afternoon. And I can choose to do that. Uh, and if we have a week of nice days, then I'm going to do that every single day. And I will just work in the morning and at night instead. And I value that uh, enough that I'm going to figure out how to make it work which does mean making really specific business decisions. Uh, and it's also been interesting. This is the first, I guess, five quarters now um, where I have been solely reliant on my business. Um, I guess, no, it's been a year and a half. Um, and so the first real year has been this last year. And uh, it, it's also been the first year that it has grown and I have been dying at the amount that I've been dying and running into the supply chain issues that come with that. Uh, and so working with an agricultural product, I need to start kind of figuring out how do I do that, which means getting my wholesale partners more uh, organized in just in terms of them being able to know things in advance so that then I can be, I basically need to work backwards because the dyeing itself, you know, I can get a fairly large order done other than drying within a week um, if I just have my dye pots on consistently. Uh, but, you know, if my mill has a backlog of four to nine months worth of orders and they're not going to have the next order done for four months, then I have to wait on them depending on specific things uh you know if i'm working with a specific breed uh, or a specific flock then shearing happens once a year for most of them so like one of my yarn bases pasture dk comes from a specific flock uh, and so whatever we get each year is what we get when that runs out then we have to wait until the next year so there are certain things uh and and it's almost easier when it's just one flock it's a little bit trickier when it's a specific breed but that that breed is not something that I can just like casually grab. So my sock yarn is one of those things where it takes a lot more to produce. It's trickier. It takes longer. It needs to be on certain equipment. So I can't just get it done at one of one or either of the mills. Um, so, uh, and it needs to be specific breeds. So, you know, if we bought 300 pounds uh, and then we've gone through that 300 pounds, then I just need to wait for a year. So basically figuring out like what are those kind of cash flows of like when am I buying a clip which is not that expensive but then when am I paying milling costs and then when is that going to come back from the mill so that then I can dye it and get it out the door figuring out all of those things is tricky but I do believe that it's possible um, and in the next three to five years my goal is to be dying enough to warrant moving it out of the house currently I just take over my entire house with the dyeing um, which works sort <laughs> but also does make things more complicated. Uh, you know, when I'm taking up the whole stove for multiple days, it's not the best. So, so yeah, so the goal is to be renting an outside studio space that is also fully accessible, that can be 
become a storefront. Um, but that my personal side of things, I made a list of like, what do I enjoy in the business? And I realized that not a single part of it was engaging with frontline customers. I dislike doing that uh, when I have like market days and I like mentally and emotionally prep myself for that, uh, knowing that then I will be like out of the game for about a week afterwards, um, just kind of recouping. So I love working with wholesale partners. I love uh, working with collaborations with other people. I enjoy teaching. But those are very different. Like the teaching is about as close as I want to get to frontline customer service. And so figuring out like basically what are what are the growing steps to get to the point where the dying is happening out of the house. And we also have a physical shop front that can be also a, a shared maker space and a space that's available for rent that we can be hosting community events at. Um, but that I don't need to be the person standing out front because uh, also like there's times where when you're dying I like I'm sorry I cannot leave in the middle of lifting you know 10 skeins out of my pot to pick up the phone um so getting to a point where we can be paying somebody well like living wage and more to be dealing with that stuff so that then I have the flexibility to work continue working in the way that I am currently working um so so yeah I mean that's currently the long-term goal, uh, and then also build more space and time in for my personal practice, uh, which is is definitely seasonal, and I'm okay with that. Um, and on the personal practice side of things, just continuing, I have this like dream of having just like a whole like room filled with mini skeins of test yarns, uh, and then just kind of seeing how things go. So yeah, that's where that's at. This episode of the Natural Dye Podcast has been produced by myself, Kelsey Doty, and my co-producer, Britt Bowles. Our theme song, Tinctoria, is written by Liz Galorn and her band. Please make sure to support them on Bandcamp. We hope you can join us next time, and thank you for listening to the Natural Dye Podcast. <laughs>